0: Hi there, it's great to be with you. If you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Revelation chapter 13? We're going to read chapters 13 and 14. I'm going to start out by reading the passage and we're going to talk this morning about a call for endurance, a call for endurance. And it's a phrase you'll see in both of these chapters, but I'm going to first of all read both chapters together and as you'll see, there's plenty in here for us to think about and wrestle with When it comes to the symbolism of the Bible, but there is a powerful call for endurance in the midst of it, which I know is going to bless us today. Revelation 13 and verse 1 And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone's to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who wouldn't worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it's the number of a man Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel A second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. This is the word of God. So it's quite a passage. But this is a, a, a passage which fundamentally is calling for Christian endurance. That's what the passage is trying to do. Both of these two chapters have exactly the same punchline right in the middle. What they do is they present us with images that relate to the persecution of the church and then sandwiched in the middle of both chapters comes the exact same comment. Here is a call for the endurance or the endurance and faith of the saints. Chapter 13 verse 10, chapter 14 verse 12. And that helps us a lot because it says, okay, there's a lot of, Big, hairy symbolism here, but John's intention in these chapters is to call for persevering faith. Like, we know that's what the writer's trying to do. We know that's what God has put this text into Scripture for. So even if we might, at times, find the imagery puzzling, we know that that's the meaning. The the application is clear, even if sometimes the symbols are more difficult. And the way that John gets there, the way the vision works, is to present us with the story of, of Christian persecution told twice from two very different perspectives. Okay, so we are getting the, the story of the church's troubles and opposition from two perspectives. In chapter 13, you get the persecution of the church from Earth's perspective. And then in chapter 14, you get the persecution of the church from Heaven's perspective. And the contrast helps us see how and why the church needs to endure. So in chapter 13, what happens is a terrifying beast comes out of the sea, leopard, bear, lion, lots of horns, all that stuff, right? A terrifying beast comes out of the sea, blaspheming God and making war on God's people. And then another beast comes out of the land, urging and manipulating people to worship the sea beast, right? So you've got a sea beast and a land beast, and the land beast kind of works for the sea beast, telling people to worship it. We'll come on to what that means in a moment. But that's the picture of chapter 13. And what happens is most people worship the beast, the sea beast, and receive his mark and his name. And they're allowed to trade. Some people refuse to worship the beast and receive its mark and either get conquered or captured. And that's the people of God. In other words, empires and powers will insist on being worshipped. Faithful Christians will say, no, we are not worshipping you, we worship the Lord. And as a result, they will get killed or excluded from social and economic life. And then he says, this is a call for endurance. Right, it is. Imperial power gangs up with, I think, religious power and says, you must do this. And the faithful Christians say, we are not worshipping you. And as a result, they get killed or captured. And that means the church has to endure. That is chapter 13. And it's a call for endurance by looking at the persecution of the church from the perspective of the earth. But then, in chapter 14, we get the perspective on the same events, but from heaven's perspective. And that is, we, we now are not looking at what it looks like on the ground, we're looking at what it looks like from God's throne, which is that 144,000 people are redeemed from the earth, 144,000 is just a massive multitude, you know, 12 times 12, 10 times 10 times 10, it's a huge number, redeemed from the earth, and they are singing, they are rejoicing, they are pure and holy and blameless, and their foreheads don't have the mark of the beast on it, they have the name of the Father and the name of the Lamb on it. And what we see is we, if you like, look at things from Earth's perspective and then look at things from Heaven's perspective, is a totally different view of the persecution of the Church, namely that the people of God have, having been persecuted, have been exalted, if you like, or enthroned in Heaven, and are now in a state of blessing and fruitfulness and purity and abundance and rejoicing that people on earth have no idea about. And we see the ultimate collapse and futility and emptiness and judgment of the beast and its worshippers. And we see the harvest of the earth. The reaping, if you like, of the grain and the grapes. And at long last, the gathering in of God's harvest, which I think refers to the, the people of God, up into heaven. And that, again, John says, this is a call for endurance. Hang in there. In other words, from Earth's perspective, faithful Christians are captured, conquered, and killed, and that's why endurance is necessary. But from Heaven's perspective, faithful Christians are redeemed, rested, and reaped, and that's why endurance is possible. Chapter 13 says, this is why you must endure. And chapter 14 says, this is why you can endure. Because look at the hope, look at the future, look at the state of blessing to which you go as and when you face this terrible attack in life on earth. It's a call for endurance. Hang in there. It is worth it. So that's, if you like, the big picture of these two chapters. Chapter 13 looks at things from earth's perspective, and says the church get persecuted, they get captured, conquered and killed. Chapter 14 says, well now we'll look at the same events from heaven's perspective, and they, these same people, the Christians who have been faithful to death, they have been redeemed, they have been given rest, and they have been reaped, as in a huge harvest has been taken up to heaven. But before we start applying that, I suppose, into our day, it's worth looking backtracking a moment and now looking at some of the symbols and how they work, because I'm assuming a lot in the way I've summarized it there. So just look at some of the symbols and what they mean. And of course, the big one to tackle there is the beast himself, the, the beast that comes out of the sea in the first half of chapter 13. So when we meet the beast out of the sea, here is a picture of the beast coming out of the sea. Okay, This is, I don't know who had the time online to put this together, um, but this is a beast with ten horns and seven heads. But I thought the picture would help you, because if you just get seven heads and ten horns, you think, wow, that's like, sort of, what is it, 1.3 horns per head. What on earth is going on there? But actually, when you read the imagery, the person who's made this picture has done their homework on biblical imagery. Because what happens in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees four beasts in sequence, which get defeated by the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. That's the plot of Daniel chapter 7. And we actually sing that song in our church. Blessing and honour, glory. And just that scene, blessing and honour to the ancient of days, comes immediately after a vision of these four beasts. And the four beasts are the four beasts you see combined in Revelation 13. Daniel says, I saw four beasts. The first was a lion. That's Babylon in Daniel's day. The second is a bear. That's Persia. The third is a leopard with four heads, which is Greece because the Greek empire after Alexander the Great died went into four chunks And then the fourth beast is a terrifying creature with ten horns and iron teeth. And that represents Rome. So the beast that you're like seeing in Revelation 13 is drawn from a vision in the Old Testament in which Daniel predicts the four empires that are going to come and attack the people of Israel. The next, the Babylonian, Persian, Greek and Roman... And then Daniel says, but even though all of those empires come and attack the people of God, God will establish his kingdom, which will never pass away and never be destroyed. And John, hundreds of years later, is taking those images and applying them to his own day and saying, basically, what we have now is a a worldly empire that is like a horrible fusion of all of the other world empires. Right? It's got seven heads and ten horns. The sea beast is the amalgamation of all of the pagan empires that have threatened God's people in the past. And in the first century, in John's day, that's Rome. In our day, it's not Rome. But that kind of thing still happens, as we'll see. But in John's day, they would have thought, okay, this is the Roman Empire, this is the, the full might of pagan empire trying to attack the church. So we meet the beast out of the sea. And I think that's talking about Rome in John's day. And then we meet the beast out of the land, and the beast out of the land is a beast who speaks and works miracles on behalf of the sea beast. And this may be either a Jewish or a pagan beast, but it represents religious power in support of imperial power. So the sea beast is the power of empire, right? People trying to kill the church. The land beast represents religious power who then backs up, lines up with imperial power to say, you should worship God. You should honor, you should pay homage to imperial power. So we have religion and empire coming together in this horrible fusion that attacks the church. Eventually, we're told that the sea beast has a mark and a number, and the number is 666. And if you weren't there for the Revelation seminar, you may want to download it or listen to it on the podcast or the app, because there I explained why I think in John's day, the 666 clearly refers to Nero. I think, but there's good reasons for that. We don't have time to go into them all here. But I think this refers to the Emperor Nero, who at this time was killing the church. In other words, what you have is an alliance between a religious land beast and an imperial empire sea beast. And remember, in the book of Acts, most opposition to the church comes through a combination of Roman Empire and obviously religious people. In the concept of the first century, it's the Jewish people. The Judaism and Roman Empire come together in the context of the Book of Acts and the Gospels, of course, at times to attack Christians. And I think what may be happening here is that image is then coloring these, this fusion together of two powers. So originally, that's likely what it referred to. But you may have noticed that that kind of phenomenon has not died out. Right? The alliances today between religious and state power have always occurred. And alliances between religious and state power that attack and persecute the true church have definitely always occurred. And actually a large number of the martyrs in church history have been killed because not just a state came for them and not just a religious group came for them, but a religious alignment with the state came to attack them. And that's often what happens when Christians are dying for their faith, and still always has been, and still is today. That's what you have with Wahhabist Islam. Not all strains of Islam at all, but with Wahhabism, Salafism, that's what you have. That's what you have, I think, with white supremacy. I think it's an alignment, often religious rationalization, to support a power grab by empire. I think it's what you have with fascism where religious arguments are often used to undergird an evil state power. But, you know, so it's not just John's day. I, I think John's talking about Rome, and John's talking about the support of Rome, that often the Romans collaborating often with Judea at the time to attack the church. But I think that principle of religious and state power coming together is something that has often happened over and over again. We are not free of it at all, even in our day, even in our nation. It's not just for the first century. It still happens. And it is a call for the endurance of the saints. That's that's chapter 13 and all the symbols. Chapter 14, the symbolism is a bit more straightforward, I think. 144,000 redeemed people playing harps, I think, pretty clearly refers to the multitude of the redeemed, right? People who have died in faith, Christians. You, in time, right? Me. I think that, as Steve showed us a few weeks ago, the 144,000 refers to the multitude of the redeemed. The harvest of the earth, whereby Jesus takes a scythe and reaps ripe grain with it, well, that's an image that Jesus uses himself when he's teaching, isn't it? The idea that history is, in a sense, like a harvest, and you have wheat, and you have weeds, and the two grow together, and Jesus says, no, don't separate them now, wait until the harvest, and then put the scythe in, and we'll separate them. So in a sense, the harvest of the earth, I think, is the harvest of judgment. And the wheat, if you like, represents believers. So the harvest picture is a picture of Jesus coming in with his end-time sickle to reap the earth and take all the right wheat, the people of God, the faithful, to be with him in glory. And I, for my judgment, the grape harvest actually refers to the same thing, that the blood of the martyrs is effectively poured into this Wine press and poured out on the world in chapter 16. Jesus' body, the church, is represented by grain and by grapes, bread and wine. And I think this is talking about the people of God being harvested, being reaped, being caught up to heaven with him. So this is a harvest and not a rapture. Okay, this isn't talking about an event that happens in the middle of history where the Christians disappear. This is talking about the idea that God is going to, at the end, will bring his sickle through the world and and remove, if you like, at that point, separate sheep and goats, wheat and weeds and so on. And this actually, when a Christian dies in faith, they are caught up to heaven's throne to celebrate Jesus with this song of the redeemed, to be pure and blameless and to be untainted from any mark of the beast and instead to have the name of the Lord on their foreheads. So that's the That's the symbolism, if you like, of chapters 13 and 14. And the reason why we can endure through the earthly perspective, chapter 13, is because we have also read the heavenly perspective of chapter 14. That's how these two chapters work together, right? In chapter 13, it says, you're a Christian? Great. You're going to get conquered, captured, and killed. And then in chapter 14, it says, "Well, yes, but the reason why you will be able to withstand that." is because we know also about the redemption and the rest and the reaping of the church. Something in the region of 70 million Christians have been martyred in human history. That's it's a thing we've touched on a number of times in this series. We need to be reminded of it because it's so unfamiliar to many of us in our daily experience. 70 million Christians. About 55 million of those were killed by the state. And about 45 million of them were killed in the last century alone. Things are hotting up. That's an awful lot of those, of course, in communist Russia and Mao's China. And in other, actually similar instances, that took place perhaps in smaller nations where fewer people died. But the same kind of principle is at work where the states often, in the name of establishing state religion or the lack of it, comes to wipe out the church. And millions of people die. And when that happens... It's described in Revelation 13 terms, right? This is like an alliance between the beast of empire and the beast of religion coming together to strike the church and killing, capturing, or conquering the church. But we now look at it, because of what John is showing us here, we have to look at those events of martyrdom and see them not just in Revelation 13 terms of conquest, but in Revelation 14 terms of redeeming and resting and reaping. And that heavenly perspective empowers our endurance in the earthly perspective, right? Because you can't see this in daily life, can you? You're walking around, you you read the news and you read about people being killed for their faith, or even you just experience daily opposition to your faith, and you find it hard to see, and so do I, the heavenly reality of Revelation 14. All you can see is Revelation 13. But this, this is where, you know, I'm getting religious and or state, attack or oppression or opposition because of my Christian faith and many of us of course see it far less than many of our brothers and sisters worldwide but we see it and when we do what we are confronted with is a reality that looks very Revelation 13-y and what John is doing is saying when this happens my brothers and sisters lift your eyes as well don't deny this reality but lift your eyes to the Revelation 14 reality in which you can see the hope The redemption, the rest, the reaping of the people of God. And that perspective empowers endurance. A couple of weeks ago, I re-watched The Shawshank Redemption. I've seen it a number of times. What a movie. What a fantastic movie. And this does, I'm afraid, contain a couple of spoilers. So if you still haven't seen the movie, for whatever reason you would give, just close your ears. But The Shawshank Redemption is just a wonderful movie in which Tim Robbins... Uh, is falsely convicted of murder. He goes to prison. He forms a deep, very touching friendship with Morgan Freeman. He makes a huge difference to the prison in a bunch of ways. He introduces music and books and education to the prison. And then at the end, sorry, he escapes through a a a tunnel in his cell that we didn't know was there because it was covered by a poster. Now, when you watch the movie the first time, you don't know he's going to get out. And it actually, when I first watched it, it really shocked me when he did. I, wasn't, I didn't see it coming at all. I thought he was going to kill himself at the end, and that's kind of what you're supposed to think has happened. So the film, until the moment that he gets out, which is right at the end, the film feels very bleak. I've got a friend of mine who says, I've never succeeded in finishing The Shawshank Redemption. I keep falling asleep or getting too depressed to carry on because... She doesn't know what's going to happen at the end. And so there's this hopelessness and despair. And the movie's pretty brutal in places. There's a lot of beatings. There's sexual violence. There's murder in the story. And as you're watching it the first time, you're thinking, where is the hope here? And some people give up halfway through for that reason. And you you feel like the main character should give up as well. But of course, the main character knows something that we don't know because he is tunneling out from behind a poster the whole way through the movie. So he has a hope that we don't have as we're watching it. And that's where the movie's powerful. So there are beasts, if you like, a beast from the sea and a beast from the land. The warden and the captain of the guard who are using all of their religious and state power to beat the prisoners into submission. They're trying to destroy him. But even though they are, the hope of where he is going and the hope of his future redemption empowers his endurance. So he's able to hang on and carry on and plug away and continue being faithful to what he is hoping for one day because he knows he's going to get out and he knows where it's going to take him. So when we first watch the movie, it looks like Andy Dufresne is being captured, conquered and is eventually going to get killed. But when we watch it again... We read the whole plot in light of his redemption from prison, justice for the wicked, judgment coming upon the beasts, if you like, and his final rest in that Mexican town, Jehuataneo. And we are, when you watch it again, you're willing him to keep going because you know what's coming. You think, it's okay, Andy, hang in there. You will get out. And when you do, it's going to be a lovely scene with you and Morgan Freeman on the beach at the end see that the perspective you have empowers endurance through sometimes unimaginable difficulty, because you know where it ends. And just as in Shawshank, just as at the end of the movie Andy steps out of that sewage tube and just raises his hands like this in wonder as the rain comes, just like that, that is what John wants us to see in Revelation 14. You will be able to withstand a great deal of trouble in this world if you only know the redemption, the rest, and the reaping that is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what happens when you live with heaven's perspective. You live with endurance because you know that your hard work is going to be rewarded. You live with hope because you know that the story ends in triumph and not in defeats. Actually, you even live with more love for those around you because you know that there is a world outside of the prison walls, outside of the beasts. And you use the gifts you've been given, like this character does, to serve people with music, or education, or finance, or whatever it is for you. You use those gifts as a witness to the world to come, to those around you. Because you know that the world will not always be thus, you use what God has given you to serve people and point them to the hope that can only be found in Christ, when the beasts are dead and gone. And you persevere, in order to persevere past the beasts of chapter 13, you need the freedom and the justice and the harvest of chapter 14. This is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now many of us might feel like the beasts are a long way off. Right? In your daily life you may think, do you know what, I'm the furthest thing away. I'm actually a very privileged person. I am too. Right, very privileged person. I don't feel like the beasts are coming for me. I'm not being... Beaten up by prison guards or tortured or set on fire to light the road into Rome, like Christians in this generation were? Does Revelation 13 to 14 really have anything to say to me? And I think there are two answers to that, as we conclude. The first is that there are plenty of people in this church for whom the beasts are closer than we think. Right? Admittedly, we are not being killed for our faith. But there are people in our home nations who are. Even people in our families sometimes who are. And as the body of Christ, when one person suffers, we all suffer together. So when I saw video footage of what was happening in a part of Cameroon from a church member recently, my... I suffered with her as I saw her and I thought, this is, the, this is still happening. This is not hypothetical. This is not ancient history. It may not be my experience, but it's our experience as the body of Christ. And when one part suffers, we suffer together. There are plenty, as well, plenty of people even in this room and in this city who do face a mixture of states and or religious pressure to get us to count out to the powers of our age, to wear the right symbol might not be on the hand or the forehead, might be the lapel, but you might have to wear one, or you might be being strongly urged to wear one, and you know you might not get promoted if you don't. You might be under tremendous pressure to make clear that you worship the empire's gods today. And it's going to cost you something to say no. Some of us in this room are finding it harder to work, to buy or sell or trade, because we refuse to worship the beast. And it might not be at this stage a beast that's trying to kill people. It might simply be a beast that's saying, unless you wear this or do that or say that, you aren't going to be able to trade. But I suspect that power is at work in more of us than we might think. And this calls for endurance, right? Not just for individuals. It's not just your problem or your problem. This is our issue together that we are called to endure, to overcome together, not just as isolated individuals. There might be somebody in your row right now who is living through this stuff in their own circumstances and you don't even know. This, is, this calls for the endurance and the faith of the saints, the, the gathered body of Christ together. That's the first answer to give. The beasts might be closer than we think. And the second answer to give to the question, does this have anything to say to me today, is that even if you don't yet experience the threats of chapter 13, the promises of chapter 14 are yours anyway. Even if you think, do you know what? I can't relate to it in my experience. Praise God. And by the way, that's my story. I'm in a community that's living through it, so I want to be very attuned to it. And of course, people get get at you and you face opposition, but my general experience, I think, wow, I am glad that I'm not being set on fire to light the streets of Rome. And I'm glad that I'm not being beaten up and tortured by prison guards. But even though I'm not, the promises of Revelation 14 are for me anyway. And I need them, and so do you. We need them to endure We need to endure in order to thrive in a fallen world in the face of sickness and grief and bereavement and stress and loneliness and unemployment and busyness and any number of other challenges you and I face. We need those promises whether the beasts are banging at your door or not. Look at those promises and cling to them even if you feel like the beast is a mile away from you today. Look at the promises of scripture. You are given a name written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You have a song that nobody can learn except the redeemed. And you have a blessing which secures your future and empowers your endurance till the day you die. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then the Spirit says, Oh, blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Those promises are yours Whether the beast is out to get you right now, or whether you didn't even know he was there till he came in this morning, the promises of Christ, of redemption, of rest, of reaping, are for you. And you can stand in them. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these magnificent promises. We thank you for this, in many ways, strange, but also very compelling vision John had to reveal to us not just the reality of The persecution of the church but also of the hope that is ours and the call to endurance that is upon every one of us we pray you would give us fiber and strength and the the might we need lord the resilience we need the courage we need to stand and to endure and we pray that you would give it to us in and through the blood of the lord jesus christ because he has already overcome himself and conquered exactly these kinds of enemies in his life and in his death and resurrection. We thank you for his example. We thank you for the Spirit's power at work in our lives. And we thank you and love you. Amen.